one small example, you know, we, we might be inclined to say, oh, you know, we're not going to fix this car because the subframe is rusted tr through and the transmission is slipping and X, Y, and Z, um, and it doesn't make any sense to invest in it. And then the person says, well, I'm living in it. It's like, now that changes the dynamic because are we condemning that person's housing as well as their vehicle? And what choice do we make differently then? Welcome back to Ratchet & Wrench Radio, strategies and inspiration for auto care success. I'm your host, Chris Jones, where today I'm joined by Kathy Haying of The Lift Garage. Uh, if you read our January 2023 feature, Not For Profit, then you've got some familiarity with Kathy's work. Uh, we're going to unpack all of that today in this episode. We're going to talk about her beginnings as a social worker. We're going to talk about the way that uh, she sets up her fee structure as a nonprofit garage, uh, how she pays her technicians. We're going to talk about some of the ups and downs of running a nonprofit garage. Uh, we're going to talk about some of the challenges her clients face uh, with transportation scarcity and, and having cars that are upwards of 17 to 20 years old that they need to have maintained. Uh, we're going to talk about just uh, where the what the future of the lift garage is. So uh, sit tight. Definitely want you to hear this. Without further ado, here's Kathy. Well, hey, Kathy, welcome to Ratchet & Wrench Radio. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you at last. You know, you're the founder of The Lift Garage in Minneapolis, and um, you have an interesting backstory that led you to becoming an auto repair shop owner. Can you tell that to us? Sure. It has been a circuitous route. Um, I have a bachelor's degree in social work and a master's degree in pastoral ministry. And then when I was 38, I went back to tech school and got an associate's degree in auto technology. Um, so not kind of a typical path for um, for someone, but um, they, they go together much more than you might think at first glance because it was really my church work and my work in social services that, that led me to see the huge gap um, that having uh, a broken down car or not having services to fix that car or money to fix that car, how much that impacts so many other things in one's life and um, just felt like a big hole that wasn't being filled. And, you know, it's hard to get a job when you don't have a reliable way to get there or it's hard to keep that job if you have to keep missing work because um, the car keeps breaking down. So um, I just uh, couldn't stop thinking about how do we fill that need? And I felt like I wanted to try to do something about it. So got my associate's degree and and uh, started the lift in 2013. Wow. Now, how big of a problem would you say transportation scarcity is, even, I guess, in your region first and then in a macro, just the whole country? Absolutely. I feel like it is, it is a huge issue um, almost everywhere, with maybe the exception of, you know, cities like New York or Boston that have really, really comprehensive public transit systems. But for most of the rest of the country, and, and certainly in the Midwest and here in Minneapolis, um, it's you know it's it's a huge need. And um, you know in Minneapolis we have a decent public transit system, but not if you're trying to go from one suburb to another. You know if you're going from a suburb to downtown, you could probably find reasonable and regular transit. And so again, just um, trying to get to jobs or things like that makes uh, you know it it's 
makes it really, really challenging if if you don't have a car. And, you know, I think often I, I grew up in a town of 800 people in Iowa, and I think often there the nearest grocery store is uh, 10 miles away. There is no taxi service. There is no public transit. There is no Uber. Um, and so if you don't have a car, you don't have any way to get groceries. And so I think about it in rural areas. We we often think of transportation as an urban poverty issue, but it is it is so real in our rural uh, areas as well. Yeah. And tell us about the shop a little bit, you know, the size of the shop, the number of personnel you have, the number of people that you see over the course of a year. Sure. So our shop uh, currently is... Um, uh, five repair bays uh, at our at our main site. Just uh, about a month ago or so, we started renting two additional bays at a, a site about 10 minutes away. So we are running seven repair bays. Uh, we started in 2013 by subletting one bay one day a week, um, and have grown pretty um, pretty quickly and uh, in pretty big ways uh, over the last 10 years. Um, and a lot of that has been trying to respond to the huge need that we just talked about. So, so we uh, are located right in uh, in Minneapolis, and we see somewhere in the neighborhood of oh gosh, 1,400 to 1,500 cars a year. Not all of those are repairs. We do a variety of other services. We do free pre-purchase inspections. We do um, mobile van visits. We do. Um, uh, express services. So if you just need bulbs or batteries or, you know, so they are repairs, but pretty minor. We do free inspections on all of the vehicles that come in. So if you're bringing your car to us the first time and you tell us you just need brakes, we will certainly inspect the brakes, but we're going to do a full inspection of the entire car and not charge our customers for that because we feel like it's a really important part of our mission to make sure that customers are educated about their vehicles and have the opportunity to make informed decisions with how to spend the very limited resources that they have. Okay, and you said you saw about, I guess you see upwards of 1,400 people. Does that surprise you that, that there's that much need? Um, you know, no, it, it didn't. And to be quite honest, that barely scratches the surface. After doing this for 10 years, I am genuinely convinced and not exaggerating when I say that I feel like we could have three or four uh, similar size garages around the the Twin Cities Metro and still be struggling to meet the need in a timely fashion. And the other reality about that is everybody who comes here has to be at, their income has to be at 150% of federal poverty guideline or below. Um, What that translates to is about $20,000 a year or less for a household of one, about $27,000 a year or less for a household of two. And that is, that qualifier is something that we set, we here at the Lyft Garage. And you know, we can talk later if you wish about how we came to that. But um, but the reality is that is sort of naming an artificial need at some level. We know that folks at that level can't afford it. But the truth is, if you are a household of one and you're making $22,000 a year, or you don't qualify for our services, and that doesn't mean you can afford market rate car repair, you still have a need. So it's when we talk about true community need for folks who need low cost car repair, it's it is a little mind boggling. Wow. And something you just mentioned a bit ago is the educational part. Can you talk a little bit about customer education? Because I know that's an important part of what you guys do in terms of serving your customers. Absolutely. We Customer autonomy is really um, a high value that we hold, meaning that we want to talk to folks about the state of their car 
and if they have a you know 25 year old car that has 250,000 miles on it and it needs $1,500 worth of work at our cost, which in the market would be three times that, and the car is, itself is worth $800, the temptation for us is to say, we're not going to fix this. It's not worth it, but that's not for me to say. I want to, we want to give the customer the information. We don't know their finances, and in reality, it's probably going to be easier to come up with $1,500 and it's going to be to come up with $5,000 for a different car. And so even though it is feels like it could be a bad decision in the short term, it is not our decision. It is our customer's decision. And that's part of the education. It's part of helping people understand the situation, kind of the risks, things like that. And so that's kind of one of the ways um, we, we have in the past, we haven't started it again since COVID, but we have in the past offered monthly car care classes. Again, very basic, not about how to repair your own car, but really how to understand your car. What does that light mean when it comes on your dash? Do you need to panic? Do you need to, what do you do if you can't afford to fix it? What are your options? Things like that. So again, I really, it really matters to me and I, I think to all of us here at the Lyft that, that our customers are as formed as they can be about their situation and that they have the autonomy to make the decision that is best for them in their life. Okay. And then one interesting factor that you mentioned in the Ratchet and Wrench story that we did on you guys that feature in January was your labor rate. Uh, you charge customers $15 per hour. How are you able to get the rate so low and still keep things, you know, above board operationally? So we are a 501c3 nonprofit. And so we exist heavily on grants and donations. So we charge $15 an hour for labor and then parts at cost. So we don't do any markup on the parts. The money we take in, um, ends up from from our service or you know from from our sales is about 12 to 15 percent of our annual revenue so the rest of that has to be fundraised in some way and we have a variety of ways we do that we have a few thousand individual donors so kind-hearted folks who believe in the mission who want to support it we have a lot of folks who say when i was young i was in that situation and i wish the lift garage would have existed then because i really needed it you know so we have folks who give us $5, we have folks that have been able to write us six-figure checks and everything in between. We, we have a nun that gives us $5 a month. That, that is her commitment and everything, everything matters. So individuals make donations. Um, we write grants to foundations. We uh, host fundraising events. And then there's a smattering of other things like I go and, and in fact, next weekend, I'm going to speak at a retirement uh uh, complex to a group of folks who live there to talk about the lift. And then people will often, you know, pay me a small amount for that or take up a collection, you know, so there's some things like that, that also supplement what we do, but yes, we couldn't do it without donors. It's just, um, I, I'm not, I'm not sure how it would, it would work otherwise. Okay. And you know, how is it logistically different running a nonprofit garage versus, you know, the for-profit auto repair centers? Yeah, what, is, that's a, what, are some, what are some of the challenges or differences that you've noticed? I mean, some of there is, I, I would say, kind of, you know, for the lack of a better word, kind of practical differences. Like we can't always um, get the latest piece of diagnostic equipment or, you know, that, that sort of thing. So we sometimes can feel limited in the level of sophistication that we can get into with some of our repairs we are not a full service shop in that we don't do transmissions and we don't do heavy engine work. We will do timing uh, belts and you know things like that, but we we stop short of the really heavy duty 
uh, engine work and engine replacements and things like that. And a, a lot of that is about capacity. Um, we can get, we have such a high need that, you know, we can get you know, 10 brake jobs out the door in the time it would take us to drop one transmission or something, you know? So it's, it's like, how do we meet the most needs, uh, the, the needs the fastest for our customers? The other is a, just a reality of the average age of the vehicles we see. Um, we track that every month. And right now we're averaging about 17 years old is the average vehicle age um, of vehicles we see at the lift. So, you know, and we live in a, a climate that uses a lot of salt on the roads. So honestly, if a car is 20 years old and has 250,000 miles and it needs a new transmission, there's a really good chance that the body is, the subframe is going to be rusting through and other things. So it, it isn't always the best investment in a vehicle, even if we did that, did that kind of work. I would say the more challenging piece of how, how we are different um, is, and this is something, honestly, I was in conversation with just this week about how do we balance efficiency and trying to get cars through as quickly as possible to meet the huge need, but also understanding that the cars we see, our customer base, are m much higher needs than the average shop. On a 17-year-old vehicle, you know, that rear hub is not just going to be a few bolts and slide right out. It's going to be probably an hour of torching and everything else to get it, you know, <laughs> unstuck um, because of the rust and the corrosion. So that's a reality that we deal with. But but also we have customers that have different levels of anxiety, different uh, mental health challenges, different uh, things that um, we don't pretend to be social workers or caseworkers or anything. And we also want to create space for how that customer is showing up for us. And so you know, a recent example is our, my lead service advisor was working with a, a customer who spoke no English, and we called into the language line and ended up spending an hour and a half on the phone with the language line who could translate for us. But the customer had a lot of other challenges beyond English, and so it was a it was a long and tedious conversation, and we, we chose to, to stay on the phone that long so that we could make sure that our customer felt good about their interaction. I mean, the impact that has on the shop is that means a couple of estimates didn't get written in that time because he was trying to communicate effectively with that customer. So how do we, how do we continue to honor that, to continue to honor that, you know, we, we are working with a lot of people, by and large, who have a particularly bigger set of needs and particularly more challenging vehicles than I think many shops deal with, but we also have a lot of cars to fix and we can do that more efficiently, I am certain, and we're just continuing to try to figure out how do we, how do we balance those two. Yeah, and that's the very telling thing. It's almost more like a ministry, like you mentioned being you know, in ministry before. It's almost more like that because, like you said, you're dealing with people who have various backgrounds and walks of life. It's not as simple as coming to the shop and getting the estimate and dropping the money uh, on the table, coming back to get the car, but it's just dealing with the fact that you've got a 17-year-old car, like you said, and then the average car, in the, you know, the average used car seen by shops is about 12 years old. So there's a five-year difference, which shows that these people are hanging on for dear life. Yep. Yep, exactly. And and then even just small things like, again, in and of themselves aren't that big a thing, but I feel like we spend an okay amount of energy. We don't have a huge parking lot, and we have, I feel like we spend a fair amount of energy just shuffling cars about because, you know, a customer will approve the work. And then when it, the day it comes to be picked up, it's like, oh, well, 
you know, my child support check didn't come through or the water heater went out and I don't have the money today, as I said, can I have a week, you know? And so, of course, we try to offer as much grace as possible when we can in those situations because we know that people are in our shop because they're struggling economically. And so just even things like that of the amount of the amount of vehicles or the, the different ways we will know, like another example I would say is we are probably more liberal with doing rechecks or, or revisits. Um, somebody calls and says my car was there a week ago and now it's making this noise. And even if we're 99.9% sure that that noise has absolutely nothing to do with the work we performed. We tend to lean into offering a, a recheck appointment because we also know that if on that 0.1%, it is our fault and the car breaks down, they're not going to have money for a tow, you know? And it is today, uh, tomorrow, it's supposed to be, I think, 30 below with the wind chill here. We know that our customers don't have easy access to resources. And so we err on the side of caution, maybe more than we should, which impacts our efficiency because... All of our data is showing that, yeah, in a lot of those cases, the recheck has nothing to do with any of the work we performed. But again, on that fear that we know that somebody is not just going to be able to pull out their credit card or call AAA because they don't have it, you know, like um, we're just mindful of things like that all the time. So talk about the technicians in the nonprofit shop sector. Is it different than the techs in a standard shop? Do you guys compensate them differently? Is the work sort of different? Like, um, talk to me about that a little bit. Yeah. So we uh, pay uh, only, uh, we pay hourly. We don't pay flat rate. And some are in large part because of the things we've already talked about, the kind of the number of things we do for free, like the, the uh, express services or the uh, pre-purchase inspections or the full inspection every car gets when it comes. So it is hard to compensate people on flat rate when you aren't charging for many, many things. There is no flat rate involved. And also acknowledging the reality that, um, yeah, because our cars are 17 years old on average and the one hour flat rate to do that hub bearing is inevitably going to be two. Um, so we pay, we pay hourly, which I know some shops do that, um, but most shops still pay flat rate, as, as I know. So that's a big difference, and that, that can be a challenge in our, in our recruitment because a shop that says you can earn up to $80,000 a year, and we all know that that shop has to be busy and that you have to be a really good tech with the right amount of jobs. You know, there's a lot of factors that get you to that 80K mark, and here we're saying kind of, our top tech is going to earn 60k and that's our very top tech and so when if you don't know if you're a tech looking for a job and you have no idea what a nonprofit shop is and you see those two price differences you're going to be like well why wouldn't i go for the higher rate so it can be challenging recruiting um on the other hand pretty much uh once we find folks they they rarely leave they like the collaborative environment you know it is not costing them money to stop and help the tech in the next bay figure out a problem because they're not on flat rate. You know, so it's a collaborative environment. They like using their skills for, for good. And uh, yeah, we try really, really hard to create a good life balance. You know, when I worked in the industry before starting the lift, one of my great frustrations was the shop closed at seven, but if a car pulled in at five to seven and wanted brakes, tires, and oil change, and, and a battery, you could be very sure we were going to start that job. And I pretty much never got out of there until at least nine. And that, that was a hard thing for me. And it's hard for people who have kids and other things. So we, we try really hard to 
um, to the best of our ability to, if your shift ends at six, you're going home at six. Everybody knows there's times to make adjustments to that, or, you know, that there's times you might need to stay, but we try to make that the exception rather than the rule. So, you know, so kind of it's a, it's a different culture uh, all the way around. But uh, on the other hand, that also can impact, you know, we have had techs for whom without that lure of, of you know, flat rate bonuses and the like, it, it can impact their productivity. So we, we struggle with that tension all the time. And, and all of our techs, one other thing, sorry, all of our techs are ASE certified. They're all trained technicians. We try to hold the same standards as any other shop in terms of quality and expectation. All right. And let's talk about external shops. Let's talk about the work you guys do with them because you do collaborate with them in terms of bringing them work that you're unable to do in the lift garage for your customers. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, that's a newish program we have started in which we've talked with this shop about what kind of what would it take for you all to see some of our customers and not have the customer pay any more than what they would pay if they were at the lift garage. And so the program we have developed is uh, you know, the, this particular shop owner said, I am okay kind of donating the space, the overhead, the, you know, all of that. I need my tech to get paid the normal rate. Um, I, don't, I don't want the tech's wage to suffer. So basically we figured out with them what, what would that be hourly that they would, their tech would need to make. And then, so in this case, I believe it was uh, $51 an hour and the customer pays 15 of that. So then we are subsidizing the rest. So the other 36 or I'm not sure if I'm doing my math right, but you get the idea. And then the vehicles that we can send to them are things because we're so busy, it's weeks before there's an appointment, like months sometimes. And so if one of our customers calls us and says, I just had a tire blowout or my car's overheating or the brakes seem to be going out like kind of an immediate need, we can send them over to this other shop and the customer will pay the same. And then the other shop bills us the difference. So if it was three hours of labor, then we're going to get billed 109 bucks or whatever that is, 108 bucks to subsidize the, the labor rate of the text, which is, of course, cheaper than us hiring another tech full time, not that we even would have the space for it. And so it's a great way to get customers immediate needs met. Um, we're sort of thinking about it as like a that's the emergency room visit. And then once the kind of immediate emergency is taken care of, then they're going to refer to their primary care doctor. So then the customer would get an appointment at our shop to look over anything else. But but it's a great way to kind of meet some of those immediate needs. But also, more importantly, as, as I talked about earlier in the show, the, the need is huge. And it became clear to me a few years ago that it's going to take more than just a nonprofit or a couple of nonprofits to meet this need in our community. And so how do we invite other shops into our work? Many of our, our uh, colleagues in the industry have generous hearts and want to be um, supportive and want to help in ways that they can. And so um, we're trying this on as a as sort of a pilot to work out the kinks and you know see, see what we can all learn. And then the hope is that we can, we can sort of fine tune it and uh, go around to um, some other shops. We have three or four other shops that are sort of, uh, we've had conversations with that are like, Yep. Let, let me know how it goes. And when you're ready, let's let's talk again. So I feel hopeful that we can kind of build a, a community effort to try to meet this need uh, in ways that kind of everybody wins. Yeah, and I think it's phenomenal because it gives the shop owners, you know, for in the profit sector, a firsthand look at the level of work you guys have to deal with. You know, because yeah. I mean, they're used to doing, you know, the, the standard repairs. Sometimes they're extensive, sometimes they're not. But you guys are dealing with like next level stuff and yeah. they get to see that firsthand. 
It's so true. And that can be sometimes hard to explain when, you know, another shop is like, well, why aren't you more efficient? And, and again, let me be clear, I am always interested in, in learning more and I am in active conversation about ways we can be more efficient. And there are just some realities that make it um, next to impossible for us to be as efficient as a for-profit shop. Right on. And so tell me, like, you know, how has your work changed your life? Like, you know, how has going gone going from social work to working in this particular sector, seeing these needs firsthand, how has that changed your life? Thank you. That's a, that's a great question. I mean, in some ways drastically and in some ways not at all. When you're dealing with just cars themselves, that cars are a lot easier than humans, even though cars can be a total pain. But they are more predictable, generally speaking, than, than humans. Um, and it's a huge switch. I mean, when I went to auto tech school, I was 38 and had this whole life of social services behind me. And so to think with my brain differently and to think, you know, in kind of a more analytical, mechanical way was it's been a huge challenge for me, and I will be the first to tell you that I am not a particularly astute technician. I have to work really, really hard at it, and and I'm not doing it every day anymore. I've evolved out of that here at the lift, and so it's it gets even even harder. But yeah, it's uh, you know really really different work that way. But in in other ways, it's exactly the same because it is about how do we be in community with one another? How do we meet each other's needs? I believe fully that kind of only in community can we solve our collective issues. And even though they might seem like, oh, that's that person's problem. It's like, no, that person's driving an unsafe car and they're driving down the road next to you and those brakes fail, that impacts you. You're an employer and you have three employees who can't get to work because their car's broken down, that impacts you. So it's um, we want to believe in this sort of rugged individualism and that we all kind of just can do our own thing. But the reality is we are deeply interconnected um, in, in so many ways. And so at its essence is what I was doing with social work and church work is finding ways to connect with people and make those connections and have people connect with each other to find the resources we need and to um, be a place to hold the story and to hold the hard stuff together. And so this time, instead of instead of it being talking about food insecurity, it is about transportation insecurity. But, you know, there is a lot, a lot the same. And, you know, I'm, I am super grateful that my life has, has led me here. It has been hands down the hardest thing ever in so many ways. It is not, not to scare your listeners away, but it has, has been way more difficult and complex than I first imagined. I'm like, all right, we fix cars, we charge less, we get donors to pay the difference, but it is, of course, infinitely more uh, complex than that. And for one small example, you know, we we might be inclined to say, oh, you know, we're not going to fix this car because the subframe is rusted tr through and the transmission is slipping and X, Y, and Z, um, and it doesn't make any sense to invest in it. And then the person says, well, I'm living in it. It's like, now that changes the dynamic because are we condemning that person's housing as well as their vehicle and what choice do we make differently then and so there's a lot more gray area than i anticipated wow that's intense <laughs> it's really intense but i mean the work you guys do is so necessary and and it's it's really heartwarming that people do come to bat for you guys you know that they do provide financial assistance you know by donating to you i think it's a it's a testimony to the people in the community Absolutely, absolutely. People, by and large, are, are good and generous. And, and again, I've found that car repair is something that everybody gets. It doesn't matter if you are from a small town or a major city, if you are Republican or Democrat, poor or rich, 
anything. It's like all of us know the challenge of an unexpected car repair and the burden that that plays in our lives. And at this point in my life, luckily, an unexpected car repair is not as devastating as it would have been 25 years ago when I wasn't making that much money. But but I, I remember the anxiety of it, and I find that almost everybody gets that and knows that feeling. And even if you have the money, the inconvenience of now, how am I going to get to work? And um, when, when am I going to have time to drop it off? And it's going to be in the shop for three days and I got to get the kids, you know, just the, the ways we rely on cars. And so it's people get it and they understand it and they, and they know it. And that I think also helps with people's generosity. And we've also had a lot of great um, corporate partners. You know, we have uh, companies that pick up our used oil for free, you know, companies that donate uh, monthly kind of a lot of our shop supplies. So like our brake clean and, and things like that. So it's um, individuals, but also companies that are, are stepping up too. All right. So what does the future hold for the lift garage? Like, you know, in a perfect world, what would you like to see the lift garage do? Oh gosh, that is, that is a great question. You know, I think some of the challenge for me in leading the garage is Again, finding a balance between responding to the huge unmet need and the pressure that we feel all the time when people can't get in here for six or eight weeks for an appointment, and also being smart in terms of how we grow. Uh, as I mentioned early on, we have gone from our first year where we literally had no budget. We had some money in the bank, but we didn't even have a budget. And you know, now um, we will turn 10 in April, and uh, we have a $2 million budget. So that's pretty astronomical growth. And with growth comes challenges of how do you how do you keep some of those core values, kind of the culture of the place, the you know, we want to make sure that we're taking time to be with people in the ways that match our values. But as you grow, things just need to shift. You put more policies in place and you put other things in place and you have to raise a lot more money and all of those things. And so it's, I, I believe that the lift will continue to grow in size. I think the challenge that lies ahead of us is sort of how soon and how big. And I don't, I don't know the answers to those yet, but the good news is, is I have surrounded myself with amazing community partners in everything from legal questions to other shop owners to nonprofit advisors and all sorts of folks who are, are doing this in community with us who, who can help us figure that out. And I think that's the most important thing that I have learned in all of this is, yep, I've personally worked really hard. I've made a lot of personal sacrifices. Uh, this thing was my vision. I've helped drive it. And none of it was done solely by me. And, and so we, I have come to know very intimately the, the importance of, of community, of, you know, one plus one plus one more, and we, we can get things done. And so if anybody is interested in, in going down this path, that is often the first thing I tell them is like, find, find your people. You can't do this all by yourself. You can be the driver. You can hold the vision. You can ask the questions. You, you cannot do it alone. All right. Well, Kathy, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. It was my pleasure. I really appreciate yeah. the opportunity. Just a great conversation, and I appreciate the work you guys do there, and uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Sounds great. Thanks so much. And that's going to do it for us here today at Ratchet & Wrench Radio. Uh, I'd like to invite you to follow us on our social media channels on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, as well as subscribe to our email newsletter, which goes out daily. Uh, and you can find that at ratchetandwrench.com. That's R-A-T-C-H-E-T-A-N-D-W-R-E-N-C-H.com. And may the rest of your day be the best of your day. And we'll see you next week.